When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. We have a good one today, one that's been kind of on the back burner for a while, and we decided we're just going to pull the trigger and do it. This is a movie that's been out for a while, but is very new to me. It is by our favorite Japanese animation studio by far. I would argue one of, if not the best animation studios of all time, contending with the likes of Walt Disney and DreamWorks, easily in some ways is superior to them. We are going to be talking the Miyazaki bizarre, violent, and dark universe of Princess Mononoke. Yeah, I am super excited to be doing this one. This has been on my mind for a long time, something I have wanted to do, and one of my favorite movies of all time, certainly my favorite Miyazaki film, my favorite film that came out of Studio Ghibli, and it has been a real pleasure over the last year or two years, I would say, introducing Derek to a lot of these movies that he hadn't seen before, especially because now they're on HBO Max. So occasionally on a Sunday night, we'll be like, what do you want to do? Let's pop on a Studio Ghibli movie. So you've now seen Princess Mononoke twice, and you've seen Spirited Away, and you've seen Howl's Moving Castle. So friends, listeners, if you uh, have an idea of what Derek should watch next in the Studio Ghibli canon, let us know. I'm thinking somewhere between Castle in the Sky or My Neighbor Totoro is the next place to go. But I would love to hear your thoughts. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I think that's a good idea. Maybe we'll put a poll up there. And uh, if we like it, maybe there'll be an episode. Yeah. I mean, there is so much richness in the work of Hayao Miyazaki uh, and so many of his movies that we could have plucked out and talked about. This one, like I said, is my favorite. And it has that dark fantasy epic, that mythic weight and that historical context that I think makes it a really perfect midnight myth episode. But every single one of his films, I think we could pull apart and make a really great episode on. So super excited to talk about it. Um, I should say, I can't even believe we're making an episode when Verbal Diorama has already done like the pitch perfect Princess Mononoke episode. So if you haven't listened to M's episode on Princess Mononoke and of course all of her stuff on Studio Ghibli and animation especially, definitely check that out. We will link to her episode in the show notes, uh, especially because she has not only an incredible analysis of the story, but she goes into some of the amazing, uh, you know, historical things that happened in the creation of the movie and then the drama of the English dub. So check her episode out, especially if you want to hear why Hayao Miyazaki sent Harvey Weinstein a katana with a note saying no cuts on it. Lots of great stories going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. I totally agree. You know, you get to a point in your life where you feel like your preferences are relatively fixed. You're a confident adult. You know what you like and you're able to articulate why you like what you like. And I had never been a fan of quote-unquote anime. I've never been anti-anime. I had a roommate once who was super into it, and we were, we were young, so we would smoke weed, and he would put on anime. And I generally thought, I get why a lot of people are really into this, but it's just not for me. And the reason for it for me is I always felt the dubbing was weird, and I always struggle with movies with subtitles as a dyslexic person. So it's really hard for me to watch a movie and read at the same time. To date, even a 40-year-old man, that's still a challenge for me. So I'm very selective when I watch a movie that has subtitles, in particular where that's the only way to do the subtitles. And a lot of times the dubbing is just corny and it doesn't match up with the animation of the character's mouths. So it doesn't really work. It doesn't really feel right to me. And I've never been able to get into anime Then along comes Studio Ghibli with these amazing movies. I've only seen three of them. And I'm like, yeah, you can still fall in love with something new. You really can. Like, you can still be like, wow, I didn't think I had the capacity to love something that is quote unquote anime. And I don't know if that's because I'm not an anime fan. I don't know if Studio Ghibli counts as anime or not, but like it feels very anime to me. And it's amazing to fall in love with something new to want to then learn about it and then to go down the deep rabbit hole of research that I want this week in preparation for this podcast. I have like so many things going on in my life that I'm literally looking at my calendar and being like, this is when I'm going to do podcast research. And I ended up like, all right, I got to juggle a few more things around because I'm not done researching this. And I, I'm just so excited, like genuinely to talk about it. And I want to encourage our listeners to always keep an open mind, in particular when it comes to art and it comes to philosophy and it comes to science. These things can really reorient and change the way that we look at the world. And you just have to sometimes take a plunge when smart, cool people like my wife 
and M from Verbal Diorama. Another reason I wanted to get on the Ghibli wagon is M's doing all these episodes. And I'm like, I haven't seen the movies, so I can't really listen to these episodes. And I'm like, I'm definitely missing out here. And just so happy to be doing this today. Amazing. What you just said is basically the ethos of the midnight myth. Keep an open mind because art can change the way you see the world. Um, The other thing I'll point out is that, yes, we are going to be talking only about the English dub in this for the reasons that you just mentioned. And I think the English dub is wonderful. Regardless of how you watch the movie, it's going to be a really great experience. So that's the perspective we're going to have going forward. So shall we? Uh, yeah, well, before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so my thing is we would love to hear from you. We are on social media. We're at The Midnight Myth on Twitter, and we're on Facebook, and then we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're also at MidnightMyth.com on the World Wide Web, which is where you can find some blogs, some extra content, and ways to support us. The very best thing you can do for the podcast is leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like what you hear, leave us five stars, a couple of words, and that helps us find new audiences. A couple of things in the hopper at The Midnight Myth. Uh, As you may have seen, if you're a subscriber, I dropped a bonus episode on Friday uh, about the new uh, David Lowry A24 film, The Green Knight, and that was a whole lot of fun for me to make. If that is something that you want more of in the future, just these kind of quick Uh, solo takes or just, you know, first thoughts, first impressions after a movie comes out, let us know um, and we can start trying to work on those for you. Obviously, we get stuff out as often as we can with a baby and sometimes our schedule's a little crazy, but it was super fun to do. Uh, Meanwhile, The Wheel of Ka is plugging and chugging ahead with The Mist by Stephen King. And I know you guys just both finished the book, you and Steve, right, Derek? And so you're going to be putting together an episode on The Mist very soon, and I'm really excited for that one. Yeah, the record date is on the calendar, and if you're worried that you're behind and haven't read The Mist in a while, it's only like 170 pages. Yeah, it's short. I'm going to try and squeeze it in before the episode comes out. I mean, you could sit down and bang it out in a beach session, you know? Yeah, like nice. that, And it's a very fun, easy read. Yeah, we have a record session on the calendar. More details to come once that's ready to be published. And uh, yeah, the reason Laurel did a solo episode on The Green Knight, I stayed home and watched the baby so Laurel could go see that movie. Which I thank you for because there was just, I waited so long for that movie to come out and there was no way I was letting it slip by me. We were looking at the calendar trying to figure out a way for us to both go to the movie together and Laurel was like near in tears when we realized how far away that would be and maybe the movie wouldn't be in the theater and I'm like, why don't you just go and I'll just by yourself and I'll just watch the baby for a few hours. And I ate a lot of popcorn, you guys, a lot of popcorn lessons out there for you. Young new dads. Sometimes the wife just needs to go (laughs) see the green Knight by herself and record a solo podcast movie, standard American family stuff. Awesome. I just said a solo podcast movie, a solo podcast about a movie. Yep. Good job. All right, let us move on with the show. Shall we do the briefest of brief recaps? Yeah, take it away, Derek. Caveat here, we're not Japanese, and we're going to be talking about a lot of things with Japanese and Japanese words. If I get anything wrong, I apologize from both pronunciation or culture. Please let me know so I can correct it. The idea is to elevate culture, never to... um, never to denigrate it. So hopefully we treat this movie with the respect and honor. I believe it deserves. Awesome. The movie stars this young prince in a small village 
who, when a boar demon attacks, he uses his bow and he slays the demon, which found out that it is a possessed ancient god that had a small bit of iron. In the battle, the boy gets touched by the demon and is now cursed. Since he is now a god killer and is cursed, he must be banished from his town and his top knot gets cut, cut off and he spends most of the movie with his face covered. He is given some hope. If he travels west where this iron ball has come from, he may find the spirit of the forest who, if takes pity upon him, can cure his curse. His name is Ashitaka. Ashitaka then goes west and in there he encounters a few different amazing things. He meets a forest wolf god and her adopted human daughter, San, who is presumably the Princess Mononoke, comes to find out that they are in battle with the Lady Eboshi. Lady Eboshi has formed Iron Town and is burning down the forest using flamethrowers and rifles, killing the old gods and spirits that live in the forest so that she can have better access to the iron. At first, we think that she might be the villain of this story. And then Ashitaka goes into Iron Town to learn that she has empowered the prostitutes and has made them an integral part in working the bellows. And to manufacture new and better weapons, she employs the lepers who are the outcasts of society. She is actually a kind and generous, but still very much a, a dictator, but a very benevolent and kind dictator of Iron Town. So Ashitaka decides, as he is quickly, I'd say, falling in love with San, he decides that his mission is to try to stop the war between the humans and the old gods, the wolf gods and the spirits of the forest. There's also a character who's a monk who is there from the emperor, who's on a mission to decapitate the spirit of the forest, to bring the head back to the emperor as a trophy, which would presumably grant the emperor eternal everlasting life. This actually works as the monk, his name is Jigo, teams up with Lady Eboshi and their soldiers and decapitate the spirit of the forest. However, the spirit of the forest then transforms into a life-consuming gigantic demon. And the spirit of the forest is kind of like this deer with a man face who can turn into this giant and who every step brings life and death. So San and Ashitaka end up combining. They get the head of the spirit of the forest and they return it to the spirit. The spirit is now whole and retreats back into the forest. San decides that she can never forgive humans for what they have done. And she decides to go back and live with the wolf god. And Ashitaka and Lady Eboshi go back to Iron Town trying to build a better town now that they have more respect for the spirit of the forest. Wow, what a recap, Derek. That was one of my favorite briefest of brief recaps ever. I was very nervous about this one. <laughs> you did great. I'm not going to lie. There's, well done. It's not an easy movie to recap in that this movie is not traditional in a fantasy sense that usually has a clear protagonist and a clear antagonist. This movie allows itself to be more complicated and more nuanced in its portrayal of the characters. Characters that you think are pure evil tend to not be. You know, one of the uh, the things is the, the monk character, Jigo, who cuts off the spirit of the forest, he's clearly selfishly motivated and is parading his sign from the emperor like he is some special person and doesn't care for the forest much, but he also feeds and clothes and gives advice to Ashitaka on his way to Irontown. He does show some compassion and generosity 
He's just cynical and hard-hearted and selfish. Lady Eboshi could easily be the ice queen, you know, stereotype, the, the evil woman dictator who wants power, who doesn't care who she stomps on. And it turns out that she cares deeply for the people of Irontown. And in particular, she cares deeply for the outcasts. She cares deeply for those that don't have a place in traditional Japanese society. And she elevates, she brings women out of sexual slavery. She brings lepers out of, puts them in the most beautiful place in Irontown, in the garden. And we get to talk to lepers who get their own voices, who get to say, I'm happy. I'm glad I'm doing this for Lady Eboshi. And they all comport themselves with bravery when the um, emperor's men sneak attack Irontown to try to take it and are defending the town while this war is happening. And so like Lady Agoshi's generosity and good leadership inspires lepers and women to become warriors. I mean, this movie is beautiful. I mean, it's just two little tidbits. Yeah, no. And those are some of the most powerful elements of it. You know, you've mentioned that there really is not a clear villain in this and there is so much nuance and so much, uh, you know, it tries to lead us to make our first impression of things just like the characters do. Uh, and then it upends them. And then it reminds us, you know, everyone who's doing this is human in some way. Uh, and if they're not human, they have uh, whatever the wolf equivalent of humanity is. They have motivations that make sense and are driven by love and compassion or deep wells of feeling. Uh, Eboshi is one of my favorite characters in this because, as you said, she could easily fall into this villainous trap but she ends up being one of the more nuanced characters. And she is extremely modern in terms of her attitudes and the things that she does. She's an extremely empowered woman, a woman in leadership in the Middle Ages in Japan, and a woman who has enfranchised people who were disenfranchised. She is a feminist icon, in my estimation of it, but so is San. And so is Maro. There are some really widely varied presentations of what it's like to be a woman in a magical or fantastical or modern industrialized world. And the ways that uh, that womanhood can be presented differently. And sometimes that's motherhood in Moro's case. And sometimes that is girlhood moving towards womanhood in San's case. And sometimes that is women in leadership in Eboshi's case and Toki. Like there are just so many presentations of femininity in this, which I think is fantastic. And as far as the work of Miyazaki goes, this one is often pointed to as being one of, if not his darkest work. It certainly has more adult themes and more, uh, more darkness than much of his other work, but even, you know, spirited away uh, and, you know, something as uh, seemingly made for children as Castle in the Sky or My Neighbor Totoro is, they all contain this, this nuance, this sense that the world is not black and white, even though we may see it as such. And it's hard to ever see uh, anyone in a Miyazaki film, but especially this one, as just a villain with no motivations. He loves to complicate that idea and I think does it really successfully in this one. Yeah, and does a, a great job building characters with conflict whose needs and goals are cross and they are, they are not only cross in the tangible sense that one wants to save the forest and another wants to burn the forest, 
but they are also crossed in a philosophical sense where one believes in San in the ancient ways of the old gods of Japan and preserving nature and that nature is itself magical, where one sees nature as a tool or an instrument to be conquered and to extract wealth from. Yeah, or even an obstacle to be able to do so. Absolutely, is the thing that you must be tamed. It must be tamed and it must be burned so that we can extract the precious, the precious part of me, metal, underneath. And that metal is then used for what? To create the very uh, weapons that they're then going to go use to destroy more of nature. If only that were relevant to things that were happening in the world today. Gee. Yes. <laughs> Uh, you being cheeky? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we usually start our conversations with, does this hold up? Obviously, we are going to say this movie completely holds up. Yeah. It came out in 1999 in America, I think 1997 in Japan. My dates might be a little off, I, but it's it's been out for a little over 20 years at this point. I think every single frame is a work of art. I think it's a moving painting. I... I'd like to talk a little bit in our Does It Hold Up about Ashitaka. Yeah. And we are discussing how the Miyazaki upends certain standard, whether they be gender norms or fantasy tropes, traditions. Ashitaka, his village is being attacked by a literal demon. And Ashitaka is the prince. And Ashitaka is clearly trained in ways of war and in particular in archery and trained to defend his village. And he does so admirably, and he slays the demon. He kills the beast in a traditional, both fairy tale and mythological sense. That would be the whole story. It would be Ashitaka, the hero, defending his village from the demon, having slain the demon. He now returns home as a hero and then learns to become a better prince and along the way of fighting the demon, he would struggle mightily and have to overcome it. That would be it. That would be Heracles versus the Hydra. That would be almost every fantasy movie that we've seen. That's Sebastian versus the nothing in the never-ending story. That is enough to make a really great story. And, and stories that we love. That's Luke Skywalker blowing up the Death Star. These things are some of the greatest narratives ever. And here we have Miyazaki saying, you know, that's actually not enough. This is not actually a born demon. This is a God corrupted. And Ashitaka, though you saved the village, we are going to honor this beast. And we, because you are now cursed, we are going to, and we are going to necessarily, we have to, by the laws of our village, we have to, banish you from society. And I think when you have a starting point that inverts the entire tropes um, of both myth, fairy tale, and fantasy, you have to be really careful because it could easily turn into season eight of Game of Thrones, you know, where you're just inverting things to say, look at me, I've inverted it. I've, you expected the story to zig, and here I am in the zag. But what, what Miyazaki does through the character of Ashitaka and Ashitaka on the quest to heal his curse, he must also, to heal his curse, he must heal the divisions between nature and modernity itself. He has to, to for the spirit of the forest to cure him, first he must stop the war. 
And it isn't slaying the demon anymore. It isn't just you know, fighting the monster. It's healing the demon. It's, it isn't just stopping the dictator and overthrowing the empire. It's making sure that the dictator respects the forest that they live next to. And it is such a beautiful way to go about this story. And it's such a masterclass in upending traditional narrative tropes. But when you do that, it's so necessary to replace them tropes with something else, to give it substance, to give it meaning. And I also love that Ashitaka doesn't get the girl. You know, at the end, San is her own woman and is like, listen, I am more wolf god than I'm a human. And though Ashitaka, you know, thank you for helping me heal the spirit of the forest. Thank you for helping end the war. I don't have room in my heart to love a human. I have to go where I actually am. And that is, I am more wolf and retreats back into the forest. And it, there's something just completely beautiful in the way Miyazaki upends the tropes, is rewriting the standard myth, is changing the quote-unquote hero's journey, though I, I think that term gets thrown around a little too loosely and with not a lot of nuance and understanding, but I'm going to use it here. They throw away that hero's journey in the traditional sense, and in it we have a myth that is now reborn into something new that we can celebrate but it also teaches us a fundamental truth about the world. And that fundamental truth is if we ignore nature, if we treat nature as our own and not try to live in balance and harmony with it, it will kill us. The story is concerned with the consequences of the hero's quest, right? So, uh, you know, Ashitaka kills the demon. Like you said, in a traditional story, that would be the end. Celebration, we killed the demon, we saved the village, moving on. But we're concerned with the consequences, and Ashitaka is made to atone for what he has done. Because even though he was trying to save his village, thought truly that he was doing the right thing, he also killed a god. And the god was not in control of his own actions because there was this iron ore burrowing deep into his soul. We see what happens when hate, when hatred corrupts not only a boar god, but a human being. And we see, uh, like Ashitaka wants to, with eyes unclouded by hate. Uh, it's a really fascinating way to continue that story by having your main character atone. One of the things that you brought up is this conflict between nature and the modern world. And yes, this story is telling us that we need to seek harmony with nature and that perhaps there was a world in the past where we did live in harmony with nature, but I think it also recognizes the inevitability of progress and the fact that the Japan that it's reflecting and in fact the modern world that it's reflecting, there's no stopping it. There is no turning back and going back to a world where we live in harmony with nature and we don't try to make, you know, cannons or rifles and we don't try to extract what's under the mountain. That is already set in motion, as tragic and sad as that may be, to watch a distant ancient past ruled over by gods dissipate. What happens in the end of this movie when the spirit of the forest is decapitated and then starts to consume and kill the land, but then after his head is restored, regenerates the land. Miyazaki actually puts this really well in an interview he gave. He says, quote, this film is just reenacting what humans have done historically. 
After Shishigami's head was returned, nature regenerated, but it has become a tame, non-frightening forest of the kind that we are accustomed to seeing. The Japanese have been remaking the Japanese landscape in this way, end quote. And I think that can be applied to the world at large, that yes, we may be seeking a more harmonious relationship with nature, but in the most part, that means we still exert a ton of control over it and we let it exist in a non-threatening way if we're not actively trying to destroy it. So again, Miyazaki is complicating the end here. While a Disney film would show us, you know, dancing around with the forest spirits and being like, yay, we're all happy and we live in harmony. This one recognizes that, well, no, Iron Town is still going to keep on mining iron ore. It's still going to keep destroying the forest. We're just going to recognize that San is never going to stop fighting for it. Yeah, I mean, I do get the sense that, I mean, Lady Eboshi does say that she wants to make Absolutely. major reforms to Absolutely. Iron Town. Absolutely, yeah. So it leads me to think that Lady Eboshi is going to try to mine iron, yes, but to do it sustainably. Yeah, hopefully with a more sustainable and ethical bent, yeah. With Ashitaka at her side, helping and advising her, right? Like, Ashitaka is going to Iron Town too to try to make it better. So I don't think the message is modernity is wrong on its face, it is that it must find its balance with nature because if not, the spirit of the forest will consume us. Right. And if not, like, I mean, I, I, I do think that is, it, it specifically resonates with the climate report that came out by the United Nations just this week that said climate change is here. It's not going anywhere. It can't be stopped. And if we put a lot of work into it, in maybe 50 years, we could maybe get it a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh man, like we've, we've, we've cut the head off of the spirit of the forest people. Yeah. You know, it's like, and we've got to restore it. And it doesn't just, it, you can't just flip the switch. Yeah. You yeah. know, once you start burning the forest, you can't just flip a switch like a light bulb and expect the forest to be back. If the head is removed from the spirit of the forest, and restored, it still suffered a catastrophic wound. It's not going to just return to its godhead and give fertility and blessings like it used to. Yeah, you cannot restore life to the gods. You cannot resurrect the the thing, the spark that started the forests in this wild and untamed manner. You can do your best to maintain a sustainable relationship, but there's no turning back the clock on climate change. There's no turning back the clock on what happens to the spirit of the forest in this movie. Really great parallel there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let us turn our, our eye to some further analysis. Yeah. Where would you like to begin there? Um, well, I have a few things to say about some of the symbolism in the movie. I don't know if you want to start with that or if you want to do some historical context of what's going on in the movie. Yeah, I went. so I started with a question. I watched um, a YouTube video about Miyazaki's work on a YouTube channel I really like called Wisecrack. They do a lot of like deep dives into philosophy and how it intertwines into in particular cinema and television, very similar to the Midnight Myth and great YouTube channel. And um, so they talked a lot about Miyazaki brings the influence of Shinto and Shintoism Absolutely. into his work. And I really wanted to understand what is Shinto? What is Shintoism? Cause I did not know and I, and, and it's link in particular to Japanese history, because while this is also a fantasy, it is rooted in an actual era 
of Japanese history. So I wanted to understand what is Shintoism, how does it relate to Japanese history, and this is a fascinating subject. Like I kind of want to pause my life and go back to school and just study this and just study the history of Japan and religious thinking in Japan. I'm also going to say it's incredibly complex and I am, this is way out of my comfort zone. So, you know, so forgive me. I will get things wrong in this, but anyway, so Shinto, here's the thing that's so hard about this. We like to call it a religion, but a lot of people who practice Shinto and who study religion argue that it's kind of not a religion at all. And what do I mean by that? The, what the central, if there is a, let me read this quote here because I'm literally stumbling over my words and smarter people have said it. There is no universally agreed definition of Shinto. However, the authors Joseph Kelly and John Doug, Doug Gill stated that if there was, quote, one single broad definition of Shinto, end quote, that could be put forward, it would be that, quote, Shinto is a belief in kami, end quote. What's a kami? A kami is essentially a spirit. They can be thought of as gods. They can be thought of as demons. They can just be thought of as spirits. They inhabit and live in this world with us. They are living alongside us, and they we can have a, a tangible relationship with the kami. We would have a tangible relationship in the kami in the respect that they have shrines and that you can make offerings to the kami. The kami can get mad and they can curse you, but they can also be benevolent and they can guide you. A kami is essentially, think of it in a Western way, think of it like fairies and elves and stories and that the fairies and elves they live on this world they can be mischievous sometimes they can help you through a tough time they're these ideas of fagan of fairies and elves they come from ancient germanic actual worshiping of of minor local deities that then turned into these magical creatures so kami is a spirit in that way in that sense and princess mononoke is a movie in which the kami are literal they live in the forest and people can find them and talk to them and interact with them. The spirit of the forest is a kami. Nargo is a kami. All of the little guys with the white heads. The Kadama, the yeah. The Kadama. They're all kamis, right? So they are all these spirits and they live and they live in nature. Um, Shintoism is often called animistic in that it involves the worship of the nature and the material, but it doesn't have a set doctrine. It doesn't have a series of texts or books. Most people think that some form of what is now called Shinto has always existed as long as there were people in Japan. It is prehistoric. It dates probably back to 10,000 BC at the dawn of the um, agricultural revolution. People have been, there's evidence of worshiping of spirits and Shinto-esque shrines. It really starts to become kind of codified culturally around 300 BC where we are seeing the seeds of the practice of Shinto as we know it today. Around 300 AD, Buddhism comes to Japan from China, and by 538 AD, Buddhism and Shintoism become one. As Buddhism becomes the main religion in Japan, they start to see the kami as part of Buddha. That kamis are spirits like Buddha vistas, a Buddha Vista is someone who has achieved enlightenment but hasn't escaped the samsara, the cycle of wheel of death yet, 
they're sticking around to still teach people. So the idea is that the Buddhist shrine and the Shinto shrines kind of become one. This process is called Shimbutsu Shuga. That is the combination and the rolling of Shinto rituals and shrines and ancestor and spirit worship into Buddhism. This lasts for a pretty long time until something called the Meiji Restoration. And Meiji Restorations happens in 1868, and I'm going to get back to that. But the Meiji Restoration is where Shinto is uncoupled with Buddhism, and it takes on the name Shinto and Shintoism, and it becomes a separate Japanese nationalistic religion that it is now today, which I've also come to find out even more complicated. A lot of people don't agree with that. A lot of people practice Shinto in their own way. There's actually three different forms of practicing Shintoism today. I don't have time to get into it, but it is in the Meiji Restoration, which I will talk about in a little bit, where Shintoism, as we know it today, as a separate religion, is born. This movie takes place during something called the Moriachi period. Now, Japan had had an emperor and still has an emperor, one imperial family dynasty that has lived through its ancient to today. It's the longest dynasty, ruling dynasty in human history. So they've been emperors for a long time. However, in the Moriarchy period, the emperor is essentially dethroned. The emperor is still there. They take part in symbolic and ritualistic displays of leadership, but has no authority and can't do anything. If the emperor is just there, but has no authority, who is running the country? The shogun. Now, a shogun, I've come to learn, is essentially the term kind of loosely translates commander-in-chief of the expeditionary force against the barbarians. That's the closest translation that I could find of what a shogun is. That's the general. That's the person who runs the army. In this period of time, the Moriarty period, which is dated 1336 to 1573. Japan wasn't doing so hot. The emperors were pretty ineffective. So in steps the general and takes control of the country. And we see a very strict and stratified medieval society with the military dictator, the shogun at the top, local lords who own and maintain their own private army of samurai at the bottom, but beneath the shogun, then you have the farmers, the merchants, then everybody else that are essentially the peasants that have little to no rights. This period is rife with civil war and conflict. Sort of think of this as the Game of Thrones version of Japan's history. You, you look- can see a lot of this in the movie. As Ashitaka is moving west, he comes across a village, a group of farmers who are being terrorized. And then, of course, Iron Town, as soon as Iboshi and the men leave to take on the forest spirit, they are under siege by samurai under the guise of a lord. So, yeah, you absolutely see this sort of military unwieldiness and uh, you know civil destruction happening in the movie. Yeah, so this period is exactly right, Laurel. You know, so this it emanates the history actually comes out of this that we see it's not a unified Japan. Even Ashitaka is from a peaceful village with its own laws, with its own structures. It has its own prince that is going to be presumably to run and lead the town, its own tradition of the wise old woman. So every place is operating within a sort of Japanese culture 
but it is very independent and it is a very might-makes-right society. Yeah. And this period lasts for a long time. This is also the period of time where a lot of other places are leaving the medieval and entering the modern. This is a period of time of lots of, especially in the West, lots of high growth, lots of population growth, reinvention of medicine and technology, including muskets and sailing, and they're starting to export and form trade routes throughout the entire world. The thing with the Shogun era is that it is fundamentally Japanese nationalist and isolationist. It is Japan for Japan. No one else, outsiders aren't allowed in. They do not want to trade. But we all know from our history, once the Western Europeans started poking around with sailboats and muskets, they started trading and taking and colonizing. So this era was sort of doomed to fail because the world is changing around and Japan is refusing to change with it. And that conflict of exiting the medieval and entering the modern is a conflict that we see in this movie in part. Another interesting thing, though, does happen in the Moriarty period. Even though that there are anti-Western, the, the shogun would allow the Dutch to trade, which meant muskets did come, right? And so did Christianity. And I want to discuss the influence of Western Christianity in this movie, because I think it's there, but I think it's subtle and I think you have to look because though Christianity is introduced into Japan, they become aware of it. They learn of it. They don't really convert to it, right? They don't become Christian. I would like to argue that Lady Aboshi is a Christian is to represent Western Christianity and I'm going to give a few pieces of evidence. One, she is into modernity when most of the other characters are not. Even the monk, he's like, yeah, it's, oh, it's, I want to tear down the forest, but I'm doing that to gain favor for the emperor. I'm not doing that because I want capitalism and I want to produce better weapons and I want to extract from the earth. In Christianity is embedded the idea that God gave earth to humans, yeah. for humans, that we hold dominion over this planet. And by God's decree, we can do what we want with nature. That's a Western idea. Who else feels that way? Lady Aboshi. Jesus was mocked and derided and partly captured and crucified because he did things like preach to the prostitutes, hang out with the lepers, but where does her workforce come from? It comes from the prostitutes and it comes from the lepers. So we see her acting in a symbolic Jesus-esque way. Um, and literally, like, I have brought lepers to the nicest place in here and I treat them with respect and they have given me their loyalty and their ingenuity and their ability to make weapons. It's saying those that are on the outcast and on the fringes still have worth and value and I'm going to integrate and bring them into society and elevate them for their inherent value. You know, so she's very much acting in this Western way. And what does she get? She gets war with the ancient in the old gods at the far she's trying to destroy and war with the medieval as the shogun lords are trying to take this away from her. So she is kind of pinged in the middle that she is Japanese. She is a woman. She's an inversion of tropes but she operates 
under Western principles, and I would argue Western Christian principles, which is what puts her at odds with all of the other characters. I think that's really interesting. And Miyazaki himself has even called her a person of the 20th century. Like he has called out how modern she is in relation to the world around her, the ancient and the medieval. And I think that part of it, in addition to those points that you brought up about the sort of influence of Christianization, is that she's also an enlightenment figure. I think that she... Uh, incorporates that sense that the earth was handed to humanity for dominion uh, with the sort of 18th century, 19th century rationality that came out of that as well. So I think she is absolutely this modern woman for better or for worse. And this helps us to understand what Shintoism by putting a direct symbolic religious uh, character on the other end of the spectrum where Shintoism does not look at the natural world as dominion over for humans. It is the dominion of the kami. The kami live within nature and they live within the natural world. And connecting to it and being in harmony with it is the way to unlock and cleanse your spirit. There's no like afterlife goal in Shinto like there is in Christianity or enlightenment as there is in Buddha because there's no set text. But the idea is that you are going to connect to the kami and you're going to give them offerings and this is going to connect you to nature. What is it that Ashitaka really needs to do? How does he cleanse himself of his curse? He must connect with the spirit of the forest. The relationship to the kami is in this respect transactional. It is in this respect material. The spirit of the forest literally lives there. And if Ashitaka can end the war, the spirit of the forest will cure Ashitaka's curse. He becomes in balance with himself and with the kami. And that is how we can understand kind of what Shinto is. But it is, I will say this, when I first started reading of Shinto, I'm like, I'm falling in love with this. Yeah, absolutely. I took one Eastern philosophy class in college. And when we got to Shinto, I was like, yeah, that one. Give me that one. I love it. But I, I told you I would talk about the Meiji Restoration. Yeah. And I'm going to because this is where... Modern Shinto, as we know it, really starts to take shape. So we have the period of the Shogun, the Meiji Restoration. When that occurs, that happens in the late 19th century, the emperor comes back and takes political authority away from the Shogun. And the emperor, his name is Meiji, he recognizes that the world has fundamentally changed. We're at a period of time in which uh, England had now just for the most part, colonized huge chunks of China. Literally, an American naval man named Commodore Perry surrounded Japan with steel battleships and said, you will trade with us or I will blow you up, and started a, a trade relationship, which you can imagine was not really favorable to the Japanese, right? When someone comes with a whole bunch of weapons of war and says, I want to do a trade deal, they're going to make those trade deals one-sided. And so they were not favorable. So he made it, the Meiji, Meiji Restoration, that period. A lot of people think that he really wasn't a good emperor, but just had really good advisors, but who knows. He decides he's going to modernize and have Japan take its rightful place within the world and transforms Japan from an isolationist medieval world 
into a modern superpower and does so within the span of about 25 years. One of the most remarkable things I have ever read in history. Literally says, okay, we have medieval samurai lords running around with samurai swords. We don't have standardized education. We don't have a standardized economy. We don't have um, any social mobility. The people are pretty much slaves. We have nothing of value to trade with the rest of the world and the rest of the world's coming. And decades later, they had standardized education. They were one of the most progressive education societies on the planet at the time, simply because they taught girls. They became nationalistic. And this is where Shinto takes form. Part of the Meiji Restoration is to uncouple Shinto from Buddhism and say, Japanese nationalists are now Shintoists and makes Shinto the staple, the religious staple of a new uh, multinational modern nation that is also at its core nationalistic. So we're a nationalistic Japanese modern nation. And part of the now new philosophy of Shintoism baked in in the restoration period is that the emperor, their family, they are descended from Kami. They are divine. They are living gods to be worshipped. They need shrines erected to them. Their power is absolute, and Japan's power is absolute. It is Japan who should be leading and running the world and no one else. So what did they do? The Japanese, after this now intense modernization, intense industrialization, a newfound god-king leading the society, but it still has a constitution and a parliament and it's educating women, and it now has muskets and steam power, what does it do? Oh, you go over to Korea and you conquer it. And the Japanese empire is born. A lot of history here, but it is part and parcel of the philosophy, Shintoism, that brought Japan to ally with the Axis powers of World War II. And so while we sit here and think Shintoism is so romantic and beautiful because I've read a few articles about it and Princess Mononoke has a wonderful message, I do have to be reminded of myself that, and though there's a lot of history there, and this is not to denigrate Shintoism in any way, shape, or form, or Miyazaki's inspiration of how he uses Shintoism in storytelling, but it is a reminder that when you take a religion and you add some muskets and you add some nationalism and you add some, some boats that have cannons on them, it is always a dangerous game. Now, one could argue Japan had the choice of either becoming an empire or submitting to an empire. And I think that would probably be a fair argument to entertain. But the end result is the Japanese did become part of the Axis. They did become fascistic and nationalistic and then imperial in this. And Shintoism is one part of an overall broader story. You kind of blew my mind with that God King thing with the emperors being descended from Kami because once again, we're seeing the eternal conflict and also, you know, how we, uh, how we make use, how we utilize the conflict between the ancient and the modern or the medieval and the modern here. When you're talking about a country going through such an intense and speedy, swift modernization, industrialization, 
And then they also use this very ancient idea, this very universal kind of mythic weight thing of the God King. That's, it's such a, I don't know, it just kind of blew my mind. It's like, how do we wrestle our people through uh, this incredible modernization, well, we also have to claim some sort of ancient universal thing, like we're descended from Kami. Really fascinating. And then that plays out in Princess Mononoke. That plays out in this conflict between do we want to claim our our roots and our uh, you know our our history as being you know in harmony with the gods, in harmony with nature, or do we want to? carry our cannons? Do we want to be modern people? Do we have to make a choice between those things? Or can we, in some political fashion, try to use one to beef up the other? And it's also a reminder that the power of myth is so palpable because myth is trying to distill the chaos of the universe into a truth that can be communicated to other peoples within a culture. That that process while can be beautiful and amazing in the way it is in Princess Mononoke, it can also be used by the powerful and the strong to dominate, destroy, and kill. And you have to recognize myths, if myths matter at all, they have to matter in both their good and bad components, in the components that elevate the human spirit and the components that denigrate the human spirit. And that exists in myth as it does in religion, as it does in philosophy, as it does in Princess Mononoke. And this movie is very much about everyone's trying to do the right thing and is trying to fight for what they believe in, and they're all wrong. The only person that isn't wrong is the person that's like, I did it, I killed a god, uh, it got me cursed. You know, like, like and I, I get it, your farce is burning down, but their iron, their iron is gonna is gonna kill you. And it's going to turn you into the thing that I killed. And this is just going to keep happening. Like, you know, like, and the, the one person that's just like, I'm here, hold on. We've got, we've got to figure it out. And it just starts with everyone putting down your weapons, putting down your, your fangs. If you're a wolf God, you know, putting down your tusks, if you're a boar God, and it just starts with us being like, we're both here. Let's just lower the temperature. Yeah, yeah. Everybody really does believe that they're doing the right thing. Lady Eboshi is a humanist at heart. And in the protection of people, and her people in particular, she does some really horrible things to nature. Meanwhile, San and the Wolf Clan and the Boar Clan are so bent on protecting their forest that they contribute to the destruction of it through this war. Their eyes are clouded by hate. Once again, hatred makes it impossible for us to see the way Ashitaka sees. And Ashitaka himself is feeling himself become clouded by hate, but he is doing everything he can to truly understand what's happening on both sides and recognize the good and the evil on both. What he wants is for the humans and the forest to live in peace. Is that possible? I don't know. But the closer we get to trying, the closer we get to cultivating a sustainable relationship between the two, even if there's conflict, the better. I mean, I th- this movie is very hopeful to me. Like, I agree. I, yeah. I, I'm like, no, they're they're going to figure it out. You know, at least at least Ashitaka is going to be. Uh, while Ashitaka is there in Irontown, will it last for forever? Who knows? But like to me, it's like the movie ends with peace, and I think that's the. 
that's the lesson we should take away from it. I think it's very optimistic about the future of at least Irontown. Yeah, yeah. And I think at the end of the day, what it really is, is life affirming, right? So we have heard before that life and death are the domain of the forest spirit alone. Life and death are his alone. But when his head is removed, you know, who's in control of this? When Ashitaka and San restore his head and he brings life back to the forest and life back to the mountain, uh, they lament, or San laments the fact that the forest spirit is dead. And Ashitaka insists that he's not dead. He's life itself. And what he's saying is he wants both of us to live. That's something that Ashitaka has come back to again and again. When San has been close to death, he has said, no, I want you to live. He said, no, live. And the the affirmation of life itself the fact that Ashitaka is brought back to life when he has a fatal wound by the forest spirit, even if his curse isn't broken at that time, he is constantly trying to avoid death at every corner. And at the end, the movie is saying, life is good. Like, continuing to live is good. It's hard. Like, you're going to have to make hard choices and you're going to have to, you know, align yourself with people who may not fully represent your values, but life itself is worth it. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, the story is saying the most important thing is to continue living and continue wrestling through the hard stuff. I totally agree. So you say you're cursed. So what? The whole world is. Yeah. So is the whole damn world. And what we learn, you know, that is told to Ashitaka very in the beginning of the movie by Jigu and uh, saying, yeah, you know, that everything is cursed. And what we learn is that we do have a little more to offer than just saying, eh, everything's cursed. What are you going to do? Just try to get some for yourself, right? And move on. Well, no, everything is not actually cursed. The kami are going to be there in the forest. And so is Iron Town. And how do you make your sense of it? How do you reconcile these two fundamental truths that aren't going to go anywhere? And the answer is life affirming. And the answer is through chilling out and getting a little bit of peace. It doesn't always have to be a war. You know, it doesn't always have to end with people killing each other. It can end with us saying, okay, let's just, you know, put down our weapons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how can you possibly believe that the whole world is cursed when you have those Kadama? Like they're so cute <laughs> and they're so benevolent. These little creatures uh, that look like ghostly babies. How can you possibly think the world is cursed when they still exist? And that I think is kind of where the, the movie's perspective on Shinto uh, sort of crystallizes for me. It's like, okay, this is no longer the world of gods and demons. This is no longer the world where the great forest spirit walks at night and is this terrifying and majestic and magical figure. Maybe those days are over, but they still walk among us. The kami still walk among us, and we still have a responsibility to share the world with them, even if they're not as threatening as they used to be. We have to be the ones who cultivate that relationship just to keep them alive. Yeah, and at the core of it, too, and I think one thing that is Shinto to its absolute core, to say the word twice in the same sentence, it, it is inverting the idea that humankind holds dominion over the earth and it is humans earth and we can do what we want with it. 
I think if there is one clear overarching Shinto-esque message, it's that no, it's not just your world. It is also the world of the kami, which is to say it is the world of spirit, and those spirits have worth and dignity on their own to be valued on their own, and if we temper with them, they will get mad, which is, I, I do think, is one of the big lessons of this that is very Shinto to the core, and something that, man, we are failing at in a oh, big way deadly. in the yeah. real world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Would you permit uh, just a slight pivot? Pivot. Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about one more dimension that the film offers, which is a meditation, I think, on identity. Uh, and it does that through the really powerful symbol of heads and headlessness, uh, which is something that has been in my mind a little bit because I just talked about the Green Knight on another podcast, but it's a, a motif that keeps coming up for me. So I was focusing on it a lot in this movie in a way I hadn't before. One of the th uh, first things that happens after the inciting incident of the killing of the boar and Ashitaka becoming cursed is that his people, the Amishi, who are the, this tribe in Japan who have been supposedly wiped out, this is just kind of the secret last holdout of the Amishi people, realize they have to banish their prince, their last prince. They're going to watch themselves die out as their future walks away, but they force him to cut off his hair, his top knot, which essentially is a symbolic beheading. He takes off the part of him that defines him as an Amishi prince. And from there, as you said in the recap, he wears a mask for much of the film and he hides his identity. He stops being the person he was, which is Prince Ashitaka of the Amishi clan. So his beheading there, or the cutting of his top knot, becomes the dissolution of his identity, which, you know, somehow is actually beneficial for much of the world because it's what allows him to try to see the, the world unclouded by hate. But we also have some other... Uh, you know, aspects of loss of identity that are tied to, uh, you know, your head and your headlessness. And I think San, a character who we haven't had a, a lot of time to talk about yet, San is an interesting example of loss of identity as well. Because as, as we know, the movie is called Princess Mononoke in the English translation, but the original title in Japanese is Mononoke Hime. And Mononoke itself has no English translation whatsoever. It's not a name. It is sort of alluding to something ghostly or supernatural or lost. So it's like if a person were wandering lost in the forest and had, uh, you know, become a ghost, that is an approximation of what that means. But San's name itself, I don't know if I'm interpreting this correctly, but San is the Japanese word for three. So it just refers to San being the third child of Maro, even though she's not literally a wolf. But San is also a suffix that's used in the Japanese language when you're referring to someone with respect. And it's used for people of all genders. But if I was referring to you in a formal context, Derek, I might call you Derek-san. So it's just an identifier of a person. Uh, it's not an individual name. It's just a title or a placement. So in becoming the wolf girl, the daughter of the wolf god, San's human name, whatever it was, when her parents threw their baby at the wolf's feet, that name is removed and it's replaced with just a placeholder. And Eboshi refers to her in the English dub as Princess Mononoke, but as we know, Mononoke is definitely not a name. So I thought that was an interesting meditation on identity as well. 
And then we get multiple references to the head of the wolf and what happens when you remove it. When Eboshi's men think that they have killed San, Eboshi says, no, wait, if you cut off a wolf's head, it still has the power to bite. Something that is proven literally true later in the movie when one of the wolves has its head cut off and still bites off Lady Eboshi's arm. So a really fascinating uh, an interesting presentation of beheading as, uh, you know, the head itself being the identifier, being the, uh, the, the piece of you that still has the brain, that still has the power, that can still bite even if it's been removed from the body. Then you introduce the beheading of the forest spirit. How do we kill a god? We have to cut off its head. That's the source of its power. And with the forest spirit, this deer with the many antlers and the human face, that absolutely feels like the most powerful, most potent part of it. That's the part that can kiss your wound and bring you back to life. That's the part that the antlers touch the sky, touch the moonlight, and become the night walker. Uh, it's also inspired by this Buddhist mandala, the Kasuga deer mandala, that's a really interesting uh, illustration of the syncretism of Shinto and Buddhism. But then how does the movie end? With the restoration of the head. It has to be done by human hands, as Ashitaka says, and he uses San, his beloved, as the other set of human hands to return it. Even though she says, I'm a wolf, she reclaims her human identity here in this last moment in the symbolic restoration of her identity, of Ashitaka's identity and the head of the forest spirit. So just wanted to bring that in, this meditation on who we are, what is the source of our identity? If you remove our head, do we not still have the power to bite? If you remove our human name, are we not still human? Uh, just some things I wanted to meditate on here in the end. Yeah, I mean, and that's a the beheading of the beast or the hero is a story mechanic that has existed and continues and will exist. And a lot of times it can also be read at least psychoanalytically as a form of castration. Right. Sure. It's noted that when Ashitaka first encounters the samurai who are, you know, bullying the farmers, he shoots an arrow at one of them. And what does it do? Bobs off his head. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. I had forgotten about that. But yes, again, the symbolism of beheading. And how do we know how powerful Ashitaka is with that bow? Not only can he kill a god, he can also behead a human with one shot. Most of the time, arrows don't take off people's heads. No, and they say he fights like a demon. Yep, absolutely. And um, so I think there is something to the idea of power in the beheading too. Well, if you, if you behead someone you have complete and total control over them. This isn't a duel in which you won and you struck the mortal blow. This isn't like, um, you know, Wesley and Indigo Montoya, two masters at their craft. This isn't like Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Maul in The Phantom Menace, right? When you behead someone, you have total power over them and you can lob off that head. And yes, there are times in movies where a sword goes and chops off someone's head. That's not usually how it is. No, it's execution. In most, and, and in most stories. Yeah. It's you put your head down and I'm chopping it off. Yeah. 
And you, to have that amount of authority and power over nature itself is what, is what the emperor, it's why he is employing this monk to go get it. And it, it rings even more true when we realize that this emperor has actually no political authority None in this historical period. Yeah. Like, like he's trying to reclaim, like if I, can, if I can get the spirit of the forest, become immortal, I can finally reign in the shogun, and I can rule Japan again. And maybe, maybe even in the emperor's mind, he's not a character, maybe in the emperor's mind, this is a good thing because the shogun, as we see, are violent and cruel and unmodern and, you know, and are abusing farmers and the innocent and sneak attacking Lady Eboshi. So like, you know that there's a, there's ter- political turmoil in this period, so much so that a, the one character says the whole world is literally cursed. So maybe he's thinking to do that, but it is ultimately about power and dominance and control and saying, I have taken your head. What do you do with the animal that you hunt and you are proud of that hunt? You display its head in your study. So yeah, I think there is this linking between power, the head, the taking of the head, the identity of the person doing it. And just to add to your point, taking someone's head is not only just taking their life, you are also robbing them of their of their identity. In almost every religious tradition, the body needs to be whole before it can get passed on, whether it's being mummified, whether it's being buried, whether it's being put on a funeral pyre. Lobbing off the head and separating it from the rest of the body is not just a like like literal symbolic castration of life. It is dominating the spirit thereafter as well in most religious traditions. So it is a very powerful symbol. Great point. Great point. You have anything else to add? No, we're way over time and the baby's going to wake up any minute. So I think we should wrap it until next time. Be kind. Be kind.